Hello, and welcome to Green by Design. On today's episode, we have Dak Kopeck with us, and I am Erica Reiner of Eco Method Interiors. Um, and I am going to introduce you to Dak. He is very, very interesting. He has an is an architectural psychologist and associate professor in the School of Architecture at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. He has authored several books by interior design, used by interior design educators, including three editions of Environmental Psychology for Design. He is a prize winner, a Fulbright reviewer. He has accolades and awards and certifications and has lots of really interesting stuff going on. Um, but I'm really interested in talking to him because he has started a program, uh, a graduate program focused on designs for human health at Boston Architectural College and um, is really focused on person-centered design and combines his knowledge of architecture with human health. And that is what we are all about over here. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for, for having me. And so just kind of a little bit of a clarification there. Oh, I yes. start the program at, at the Boston Architectural College, and it is still in operation. But I am currently coordinating a Master of Design in uh, Health and Wellbeing at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, UNLV. So Wonderful. that's where I am currently. Wonderful. That's great. Um, And glad to hear that schools are um, having people like you develop programs like this because it's been a long time coming, I think. I agree with you completely. So, yeah, I would love just to hear about your story. Um, Either, you know, whatever came first, whether it was your interest in um, architecture or your interest in human health and how those combined to do, you know, healthful designs and human-centered design and all that kind of stuff. I'd love to hear how those two things merged and your interest in them. Sure. Um, I'll give you kind of the, the the middle version, not the abridged, not the long, but the middle one. Okay. Good. Uh, so I was uh, born with severe asthma. So if you had a scale of one to 10, it was probably a scale nine. Ooh. And um, I was born in the early 70s, late 60s. And uh, we didn't have the medications that we have today. And um, my one of my, my most profound experiences was when I had to watch some friends of mine flying a kite on a nice spring day, and I couldn't go outside because I was allergic to everything going out there. And that's when I realized that, that the environment itself had a strong impact, and I was starting to define myself according to the things that I could not do within the built environment, within the built and natural environment because of, of my allergies. Uh, I had that, that, that uh, understanding and uh, my parents were very proactive. So I'm, I'm super happy that I had good parents that way and looked at what I could do, not looked at what I couldn't do. And so they got me involved in singular sports because team sports were were not working for me because if I had an asthma attack as I was playing playing baseball, then I would internalize that negatively. So they they encouraged the singular sports of of things like gymnastics and wrestling and those things that that I could control. So thankfully they did that. But I realized that those sports were were an engagement in those sports were actually helping me. Be, and I didn't know it at the time. 
um, I was working on my associate's degree and I concentrated in exercise physiology and I learned that what I was doing through the sports was increasing my lung capacity, which was meaning that the effects of the asthma weren't affecting me as, as severely as they were before. Uh, so that's where I thought I was going to go. And uh, ultimately, I pursued my, my graduate degree, my undergraduate degree in, in health sciences, because again, I was looking at that relationship between the built environment and how people were, were using that environment to, to define themselves and to define their, their opportunities and their limitations. Uh, unfortunately, when I got out into the field of, of public health, they weren't really looking at those types of environmental issues at that particular time. And that prompted me to get my first master's in community psychology, because then I started to see, well, okay, well, certain communities are behaving in certain ways. And we can start to figure out like what communities are going to have higher issues with, with alcoholism, what communities are higher issues with, with spousal abuse. And so that's where I thought I was going to go. And uh, I ended up arguing with a lot of my professors because they would talk about social issues all the time. And I would be like, yeah, social issues are important, but what about what we're doing to the infrastructure? What is it that the city is saying about me? When I live in this part of the city, is this telling me what I can be or what I can't be? Is this supporting me in what way? And one of my professors, you know, would get into debates with all the time, finally gave me an article that was written by an environmental psychologist. And it was taking a look at the relationship between a super Walmart in uh, placed into another community and how this environmental psychologist was saying that that would be really bad for the community and it would lead to, to more blight and other issues. And after reading that article, I'm like, oh my God, that's it. So um, I am not an academic by any means whatsoever, despite everything that you see. It was just that I was on a path and I was trying to figure out, well, who am I? And I know what is important to me, but I'm not finding it in, in a degree and I'm not finding it into a profession. And then I found it. And that's what caused me to pursue my PhD in environmental psychology. Um, I was lucky because I was doing some consulting work and an interior design school had saw that I had a degree in environmental psychology, asked me to come into the interior design school and to, to teach what I had learned. Well, uh, environmental psychology was great, but it still has, has strong social content. It wasn't really looking at the specifics that we can do through environmental modification as a means to, to bring about better reflections. And it was in that class, I was really lucky. I had a really supportive group of students who we had this great symbiotic relationship because I taught them the knowledge about what I knew about the research and the theories and stuff, but they taught me how to apply that to interior design. And that's actually what led to my first publication is was that whole process of how to distill all of this information into something that was practical. And um, so I, I did that. And then I also got picked up by a school of architecture. And um, I just kind of felt like I didn't really have all that I needed to know with regard to the design foundation. And that's what caused me to go back to get my, my second degree and my second master's degree in architecture. And I stayed in architecture and interior design ever since then. And that's why I'm here. Wow, what a story. Um, will you tell us a little bit more about the principles of environmental psychology and what you've turned it into, the principles of environmental psychology for design and interiors and architecture? 
Well, a lot of the principles in psychology still have a strong social uh, context, and there's a relationship to how people internalize what it is that they're seeing and how they process it, and how does that then distill into, into the behaviors and such. I take a look at the same principles and I start saying to myself, okay, well, if, this, if these are some of the elements that, that go into um, a successful learning, say for, for a child with ADHD, ADHD, we want to uh, increase their learning outcomes. I say to, I look at, at some of the research and what it's relational to and say, okay, well, that's great. You know, access to the natural environment and walking through a, through a city park, you know, and taking 10 minutes is fantastic, but not all kids can do that. So can we do something to the classroom itself or what is the environment? So, you know, many of the studies that have been done have been done in Illinois or places where there's a lot of greenery. I teach in, in Las Vegas, <laughs> we got a lot of rocks. So is, is the same benefit going to happen for, for my children who are you know, surrounded by rocks and cacti and you know, those things, uh, is the outcome gonna be the same? So for me, it's translating all of that stuff to say, okay, well, what are the components to the natural environment? What are the different elements that we can then bring into, into the built environment? And will it have the same and satisfying effects? And what have you found? Like, what are some really fun little like fun facts or stats that um, we could use to say, you know, when we manipulate this, uh, this comes out of it. Like, what are some of the really like great juicy bits that are going to, you know, convince people a, that design is important to them and can have a bigger impact on their life than they might've otherwise thought. Cause that's like the drum I'm always beating. Sure. Sure. I think that we have to take a look at, at the individual and this is where the, the person centered design comes into play. And, and I respect the fact that, that sometimes we as designers, we have to design a school that has to support everybody. But you know what, it doesn't. It has to support everybody in that community. It doesn't have to support everybody in the nation. It doesn't have to support everybody in the world. So once we find out who it needs to support within that community and what are the preferences and what are the worldviews for them, then we're able to, to take a look at that to say, okay, how do we make that work? You know, one of the one of the projects that I worked on, which was a school for uh, emotionally disturbed youth, uh, people who had been incarcerated and they have to go to to these special kind of schools. You know, we wanted to bring the natural environment in. Well, when we started talking, we realized that a lot of the kids viewed the natural environment as being only for the rich. They didn't see that as as their option. And so we then thought to ourselves, okay, well, what is their option? So we did a drive through the entire, their community of where they grew up. And we saw some really interesting graffiti art. Well, if you look at nature, you see that everything is organic and it's rounded and you see the, the blending of colors. Well, if you start looking at some of the graffiti art, you see the blending of the spray paints between them, which is the same thing that you see in nature. And you still see the roundness and the curves and you see some of the undulations that you might see with a rock. And so then we started to say, well, what about what about if we were to do some graffiti up on, on the wall? Would that be would that be something that, that you would be interested in? And so then this, the students then created a whole bunch of drawings and uh, we did a voting on it. And then whoever was, we put that up at the top top frame. So it wasn't in the primary visual field, but it was in the upper peripheral visual field. 
so that the students could take ownership and it was something reflective of something that they were proud of. And so I think that, you know, that's an example of including the students into the overall design projects so that they don't look at it as an us versus them, but rather it, this is mine, I own it. We created this, you know, we had this thing, but it was my friend that won that competition that won that, won that particular banner or um, area up there. So I think that that's one thing, if you take a look just at the community and try to understand what it is that the community wants. But then it, what about if you've got somebody who like a returning war veteran and, and they suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder? You know, what are the triggers? What, what's happening that is gonna cause them to move into a fight or flight motion? And, you know, if you've ever been in a full fight or flight motion, you know that you're not really responsible for your actions because you're in an adrenaline surge. So we start to take a look at that to say, okay, well, how do we then design for them? And so oftentimes it's like sudden booms or sudden bangs, you know? And so that's when you, you might incorporate something like a tapestry in, in a front wall or something, or you try to control the sound permeation through, through the particular building. The other one that I'll give you, because I love to speak in, in examples of three, is um, you know, for, for older people or people who are having a hard time finding purpose. Um, we know that when people don't feel like they have a purpose in life, that can bring about depression and depression and anxiety are, are strongly associated with one another. And so, you know, applying the old, the old notion of tending is mending. Uh, creating some gardenings and bringing the, the plants in. So you've got plants behind you. Those all require nurturing and it requires you to stop, assess what you're doing, and then uh, water the plants and, and to take care of them. So this is a case where, where gardening and being able to nurture something and see it move forward, or whether it's a fish tank. So maybe some people aren't into plants, but you get a fish tank. Again, you have to, you have to keep tending to it. Um, and then of course there's a the complicated ones of dogs and cats that you have to, to tend. But that whole notion of tending is mending um, really does help with, with those particular populations. Wonderful, thank you for those examples. Um, what do you wish that the interior design community as a whole knew a little bit more about? Like if you could disseminate a few nuggets of knowledge, um, like what do you see in general as lacking as we work with our residential and commercial clients that were, could be leaving on the table? Um, I see, it. I see for, for lacking, I, I don't think that we have a very strong psychobiological background. Um, I don't know that that people always know, um, you know, just something really, really silly, like what's the difference between an ischemic stroke and a hemorrhagic stroke? And what does that then mean for design? I mean, if you have an ischemic stroke, that's more of a blockage and design's purpose there is predominantly to be rehabilitation, but a hemorrhagic, you know, those, those cells are dead in the brain. So you're looking at habilitation and so you have to design for the new normal. Um, by not knowing the subtleties of, of that or the difference between rheumatoid arthritis versus osteoarthritis, when we don't know that, then we tend to overcompensate. And, we, and when you overcompensate, then people can lose abilities that they already have because if you don't use them, you lose them. And so we can, we can design to, 
to push some of the limits and we can work in tandem, particularly with the ischemic stroke case, we can work in tandem with the physical or the occupational therapist to come up with an environment that supports the rehabilitation process so that we can try to get the, the person as close to where they were um, as possible. So I think that I would really like to see more of that in, in an interior design program and curriculum so that we're able to, to have those conversations a little bit more in depth. So it sounds like for some of the, um, I, it's not commercial, but like the, um, you know, hospital and medical center design, um, what you're saying is it's not you know, one size fits all and learning about some of the more granular medical issues that line up pretty specifically with design issues is what you're, is what you're going after here. Like having a more of a crosswalk or a crossover between the two fields of study. Um, I think that just as much as, as you have uh, psychology courses in, in public health or, or in, in nursing, I think we in design have to acknowledge that we are part of the overall trifecta of the biology, psychology, sociology, and we're the environmental component of it. We've been left out of the equation for way too long. And we have, we have people who think that they know what, what good design is either at the biological level or at the sociological level, but really the interior designer or you know, the architect is the one with the design foundations. And so we can work within that to do just about anything. It could be anything from helping children to learn who have learning disabilities, to helping dealing with stress and stress management, to um, working even with two parents that are having a newborn child and they're bringing in another person into their lives. I mean, there's a lot of different factors where interior design and architecture spill into psychology, spill into sociology and spill into the, the medical fields. And we really need to, to have a baseline knowledge of what those are to be able to communicate effectively with those professions so that we can be included into the holistic healthcare process. So I think a lot of people are familiar with the idea um, or a little bit of, you know, design psychology, especially as it relates to color. We see that one being, you know, disseminated throughout, you know, popular culture a little mm -hmm. bit more frequently. Like I even remember being a kid and someone telling me like, you know, yellow is a good color, but if it's too intense, it's going to make you feel really like crazy and anxiety. And then red, you know, always indicates passion or anger and blue is calming and blah, 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 blah. Um, so besides color, I think, you know, whether or not all of those are hard and fast true associations, what other criteria or elements are designers thinking about like things like um, space and proximity and pattern and shape and like what are some of the other criteria and how those like maybe a couple like of little tidbits on how those relate back to mood or behavior? Well, where you're, where you're touching on is based off of stimulation theories and uh, so color patterns you know, they can either be high stimulation or low stimulation. The, the more curvies and the more rounds are tend to be lower stimulation as opposed to these, you know, undulating rectilinear aspects, which 
happen to be yeah, higher stimulation, but that then gets juxtaposition with the color itself. And so you tend to see minimalist design using white because that's a lower stimulus stimulating color. So it's this constant balancing between all of these different elements and that's just within the visual field. So then you've got the auditory fields and you're looking at sound reverberation. Um, and then you've got the, the olfactory fields, which is all of the different smells that you're smelling and all the different sensations that you're getting from touch. So whether it's heat or wind or anything, all of this comes together into, into a complicated web of, of sensory detection. And so as designers are designing spaces, we need to identify what is the optimal level of, of sensory uh, input for, for the, the people that they're working with. And that differs from culture to culture. I mean, some cultures require and want more stimulation because that's their baseline. And other cultures or, or maybe even uh, different folks that live in more rural areas have a much lower level of that sensory so you know, that's why we have to work within our specific communities to not use these broad strokes to paint and say, everybody in the United States is like this, or all women are like this, or all vertically challenged people are like this. And all, you know, we shouldn't be using those broad strokes and really be looking a little bit more local and more regionalized. To right. Um, when I used to teach environmental science, I, I that kind of overlaps with some, um, you know, theories that I would run into like place-based or student-centered. It sounds very similar. And the premise was, I guess, a little bit similar in that, like, it, it's harder to get people to care about some difficult theories or even abstract theories like climate change um, when they aren't place-based or, you know, human centered. And so it sounds like a little bit of overlap there, which is really interesting. Yeah, I, I would agree with you. And, and I wonder sometimes just about the relationships So one of the recently I had a group of students create collages of, of their perspective. And it was interesting to see how a couple of them showed them showed themselves because they have to start with an image of themselves and then they use Photoshop with different images but they, they show themselves like in a cloud with the roots coming down, which clearly shows that there's no attachment. So, you know, they're not incorporating place into their sense of identity because of all the moving around that that person had to do in their life um, mm. for, uh, for school or, or whatever. Right. So, wow. So what are the anchors? What are the anchors that are, that are, that are establishing that sense of place, which then relates to sense of identity. So it's that, that rela initial relationship that I talked about in the very beginning of how my environment gets internalized into who I am and my, my abilities, my supports and constraints. If I don't have that, then what does that mean? I don't know. Okay, so I'm going to adapt this question a little bit for you. Normally I ask if it's a designer or green designer, I would say like, what are your favorite ways to go green in a project or whatever? Um, but for you, what are your top three ways or your top three like things you do um, or things that you want to look at and consider when you're starting a new project? When I start a new project, the first thing I do is a community analysis, which is very similar to a site analysis. 
but from the community analysis, I'm looking to see what the local culture is and what the what the lo local flavor is. So I might be visiting some of the coffee shops. Are you look? Are there a lot of, of more austere coffee shops in the area, or are there more of the living room eclectic type of coffee shops? Because that helps me to understand what is the relationship between the work, the home, and the recreational environment. So I do do that community analysis to try to understand who's living in this community and that are going to be the occupant end user. From that particular point, I take a look at who the occupant end users are. I mean, are you literally trying to, to capture people in, in the 30 to 50 range, which would be your, your primary work setting, trying to catch that, that 18 to 30 year old, um, you know, college type of, of person, or are you trying to catch that, that more uh, retirement? And so then I would develop a, a, again, some type of a generalized understanding of who that is. And then I would try to mix the two together to say, okay, there's a probability, there's a high probability that this population is going to come from this community and if I merge the two then I can get my probability of being successful with my design is going to go up so right wonderful um what other what's your what would be your next step at that point well that ne next step would have to be a discussion and to see what types of of latitude do I have would I be able to do a community focus group to run some ideas by the by the people um, sometimes that's not, not an option. Sometimes that's not in the budget. And so sometimes I will create the presentation based off of my logical framework that I've created. And so I will create my, my steps to show how I came up with this particular design element and what that design element was to run it past them to see what, what their generalized thoughts are. Uh, if they disagree with it completely, well, then obviously I have to I have to revamp because at the end of the day, the client is is right if they're paying for it because <laughs> yeah, so you know. So, do you have you had any um, really like rewarding experiences or data gathered or even anecdotal um, you know evidence coming your way from one of the places that you've helped to create and the outcomes that it has for its residents whether it was the school that you're talking about or uh, a you know a nursing facility or healthcare facility recovering facility when you look at them compared to similar uh, or not similar but like you know say the regular <laughs> facilities who didn't consult you like maybe if, you know, a nurse has ever said like, wow, people recover so much better here or um, even any, you know, scholarly stats or anything like that. Um, I mean, I've worked on, on several projects. Um, you know, I can say that value engineering tends to take out some of, some of the really good bits, but I, I can tell you that that first school that I worked on, which was part of a not-for-profit organization and they had three levels, um, they were very open and receptive to, to all of the unique or the avant-garde, like I said, the graffiti, the graffiti art. Um, and I got a lot of positive feedback uh, on those things, uh, that those ideas that we initiated and, 
you know, it, I've often kicked myself because I've never gone back to do, do a full-blown post-occupancy um, evaluation so that I could then have it, um, have it submitted to a journal for publication because I naively assumed that, you know, as part of a, an academic institution, we get asked to do some of these community service projects and these projects can, can become expensive. And I think that um, this was one project that they actually moved forward. And so I got lots of results. Like I would have never thought that elevating the teacher. So one of the things that we did is that we created a little stage in front of the, the classroom and we put the teacher up. So the students looked up um, that that would actually have a, a, a beneficial effect. <laughs> and, and it did now, is that a, a one-off? You know, it's obviously anecdotal evidence. Um, is it a one-off that, that that class did it? And, or did they just do it because it's something that they've never seen before? You know, is it one of those like novelty things like the Hawthorne effect? Um, or, or is it true that, you know, if you're focusing up, you're going to be paying attention more? I don't know. Um, but I also know that, that they talked about less vandalism to the school when we started putting the artwork according to the, to the graffiti art. So, um, you know, that, that's probably my best. And I, you know, I'm, I believe that other places have also had beneficial outcomes that, oh, actually, there's a really good one that I was thinking about that we did in Boston, which was a group home where they worked, where we were working with adults that were, um, had cognitive delays. So one of the residents in, in, the, in the home, in the group home had probably like maybe a two year or three year old IQ. And um, there was another one that wasn't much higher. And so this was from my students. So I'm gonna give my students 100% full credit for this, but this was at the Boston Architectural College. And um, they were inside the home and they realized that so let me say, the reason we were brought in was because some of the residents were screaming and yelling. Mm -hmm. The residents in the neighborhood thought that they were being abused. So- Oh my. They, right. So the corporation brought us in, the company brought us in to say, hey, can you help us you know, with some of the sound dampening and sound attenuation? Because you know, once they knew that it was really, it was really just more about, about the cognitive level of, of the resident. Well, a couple of times the students were just just sitting there and they were just, you know, just observing just in general and, and doing some drawings and stuff. And what they realized was that the screaming always happened roughly 20 minutes before the food was being served. And they thought to them, this one girl said, no, my dog does that when I'm cooking. I can hear it whining and whining and whining for the next 20 minutes. And the next and she's like. I wonder if they're smelling it and they're, they, they are internalizing that they've forgotten to be fed and that's why they're screaming. One was above the stove and one was right behind the stove to, to pull out the scent and lo and behold, solved our problems. So it worked Wonderful. out pretty well. Yeah, yeah. I love um, examples like that. And I think we need, you know, I would love to see in this field. So my whole business eco-method engineers is about interior design that is more of a holistic approach in terms of mental well-being and physical well-being with the, you know, healthy air and water and all that kind of stuff. So um, as far as like the 
the mental well-being and the physical well-being, I'm always looking for like the stats. I'm always like, you know, accompanied by like a nice little emotional story that can hit home. But I always want to have the data being a, you know, educated in science and science person before this, I really want to have that to rely on. And I wish we could get a little bit more in this field where we can say, you know, it's a little bit formulaic where it's like this kind of design is significantly more likely to result in this kind of behavior or mood or whatever. And and the same thing with the um, health outcomes. So I'm always looking for that. Um, So I appreciate those stories and everything that you have shared with us today. I want to be mindful of your time. So um, my last question is just where can we find you if people want to learn more? I'm actually pretty easy to find. You just have to type in my name, Dak Kopech, and I pretty much pop up in Google everywhere. But I do have a website, uh, Dak Kopech, D-A-K-K-O-P-E-C dot com. So uh, you can find me there. Uh, I'm also at, at at UNLV School of Architecture, so you can you can find me there as well. So I appreciate the work that you're doing, and um, I hope more people more people embrace what you're doing and where you're going. Thank you so much, and thank you again um, so much for your time and sharing all of that incredible knowledge with us. And we so appreciate it, and we will talk soon. Great, thank you.